I won't say best until last because that would suggest that what you just heard wasn't as good, um, but certainly saving good until last. Ken Sherman is a professor of medicine uh, at the University of Cincinnati, and I've had the pleasure of hearing, I think, a, a previous version of this talk at IDSA. It's spectacular, uh, really. Um, what should we, as we start dipping our toes into the HCV water, know about liver disease if you weren't trained as a hepatologist? So, Ken, welcome. Thank you for the kind introduction, Paul. So I want to echo what you just heard. There are over 4 million people in the U.S. with hepatitis C. And among what one might call pure hepatologists, uh, there's about 300 of us in the United States. And so we need a lot of help. And uh, I think that... Uh, that though it sounds overwhelming, uh, if you're already managing HIV, then it's a body of material that can be mastered. And uh, I encourage you to start thinking about that and how to incorporate that into your daily practices. Now, if you're going to do that, there are some things you need to know about liver disease. So we'll start with a question. Which of the following is true? Hepatic fibrosis can be reliably diagnosed by ultrasound examination of the liver. Liver fibrosis rates are predictable and linear. When someone is cirrhotic, the chance they'll die in three years is 25%. Or in the patient with HCV-associated cirrhosis, 1% to 2% per year will develop HCC or liver cancer. Go ahead and make your choices. Gee, I was really hoping they'd play a song that I knew. <laughs> so the majority of you selected the, the correct answer. One to two percent per year will develop HCC. Uh, Ultrasound does not reliably diagnose fibrosis. Uh, in very advanced liver disease, you can see evidence of a, either a shrunken liver or signs of advanced liver disease, but it doesn't tell you anything about fibrosis specifically. And liver fibrosis rates, as we'll see, are not predictable and linear. And uh, when someone is cirrhotic, the chance they'll die in three years is 25%. Uh, no, a little different than that, and we'll look at that as well. Okay. So what are we talking about when we talk about fibrosis? This is a series of liver biopsies from different patients that demonstrates the various stages of disease. And uh, I'll focus on this one here because it's easier to point this way. The standard biopsy uh, in a patient without Fibrosis is pink on an H&E stain, and you don't see much else in there. There's some little holes uh, and white spots, and some of those are fat, and some of those are vessels um, of various types. But as a person develops chronic hepatitis, some of them will develop scar around the portal areas where blood vessels enter the liver lobule. 
and you start to see an expansion of those. And over time, that expansion continues. You start to get little fingers out, and eventually those fingers connect with each other. And what we call stage three disease or bridging fibrosis, we see connections between a couple of portal areas. And then finally, in a patient that is cirrhotic, we see a liver lobule that's totally surrounded by scar. So cirrhosis is not a clinical diagnosis. Technically, cirrhosis means that you have evidence of a liver lobule surrounded by scar. And uh, when we see that, then we often begin to see the development of signs and symptoms of more advanced liver disease. So again, you can't see this on an ultrasound. You really do have to have a liver biopsy. And the liver biopsy has to be of good enough quality and big enough to let you see that rather than cutting this piece off here in a small biopsy such that you think you have this when in fact you have that. Now the rates of progression are highly variable from the time of infection in those who develop chronic disease. And you could see that there are people that progress extremely rapidly. Uh, in fact, in, in certain settings, uh, patients will progress in just a few years from no fibrosis to a severely fibrotic or even cirrhotic liver. And in other cases, people will go for their lifetime and die with hep C, not of hep C or related liver disease. And there's a whole bunch of factors that go into those rates of progression. Overall, though, we can say a few things. That uh, about 5% of people per year who get cirrhotic will turn into decompensated disease. So when you know someone is cirrhotic, then in about 10 years, half of the people you see will develop signs and symptoms of advanced or decompensated disease. And an additional 1% to 2%, that was the question before, will develop liver cancer. So we have a case presentation. We have a 48-year-old man with hepatitis C. He has a history of two years of injection drug use at age 19 to 21. Um, now he's a, a respected member of society, or at least he's a lawyer. You can judge for yourself. Uh, he, has, he has moderate social alcohol use, um, some fatigue and insomnia, and his labs are as shown. His ALT is 89, AST 67, his Billy is 1.5, Alkfos is 197, his hemoglobin is normal, his platelet counts a little low at 111. His HCV RNA is 2.7 million international units, and his genotype is 1B. He gets sent for an ultrasound, and the report comes back that says, echogenic liver consistent with fat or liver disease, which is about as useful as most uh, ultrasound reports get, unless you find a specific focal lesion that makes you think about liver cancer. So... Now, here's your question. Hepatic fibrosis can be reliably diagnosed by ultrasound examination of the liver. I sort of gave that one away. Uh, liver fibrosis rates are predictable and linear. When someone is, wait, 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 this looks like a repeat of the other question. Next question. This isn't it. 
Ah, no, not a question yet. The patient is treated with a three-drug regimen in August of 2011. So it hasn't happened yet. Um, but at 12 weeks, uh, the virus is undetectable. You heard that that was a good thing. And the patient notes a weight gain of about 10 pounds. His wife indicates that he does seem a little drunk at times, but he insists that he's not using alcohol because I told him not to. So, now is the question. You would now prescribe an antidepressant, reassure the patient that these are standard interferon side effects, order a stat ultrasound, or suggest that perhaps he increases exercise and go on a diet. And I didn't know that song either. So, about two-thirds of you want to order a stat ultrasound. And uh, I think that that is the correct answer. Um, a small percentage want to prescribe an antidepressant. Um, and uh, while many patients with hep C do have interferon-associated depression, it worsens with treatment, often an underlying condition of depression that, that gets worse, uh, I don't think that that's the problem here. Uh, reassure patient that these are interferon side effects. So interferon um, can cause some fogging, some mental confusion, and you need to think about that. But if the wife notices a big problem, it's probably something worse than just an interferon effect. And patients on interferon tend to lose weight, not gain weight. So up to a 10% loss of body weight is pretty common. Interferon is good if you need to diet. And in my practice in Cincinnati, a lot of my patients benefit from that treatment. And then suggest exercise and diet. Well, you should always do that, but that's probably not going to fix this problem. So let's talk about what this problem is. We're talking about hepatic decompensation which can occur with treatment in a patient with more advanced liver disease. We'd like to cure, we'd like to treat and cure all of those patients that have advanced liver disease, but at some point it gets a little bit risky, especially when using interferon-based therapies. And this is why you need to know something about liver disease. So what is hepatic decompensation? Well, when a patient develops ascites, they have decompensated even if it doesn't stay, if it goes away. And when they have ascites, it's often complicated by other problems, including hepatorenal syndrome, hepatic hydrothorax, and development of bacterial peritonitis. Uh, patients will develop hepatic encephalopathy. That's a sign of decompensation. Bleeding varices, or you have to look for the PT or INR, a coagulopathy with a PT greater than three seconds over control, or an INR greater than 1.5. If you see that, your patient has decompensated disease. Now, the classification of decompensated disease, uh, classically, what many of you were taught, 
sometimes years ago, was based upon the child scoring system or the child's Charcot Pew or the child's Pew. It has a variety of names. Uh, but basically, it took five characteristics and it assigned a point scale to each of those, looking at bilirubin, albumin, and PT, laboratory tests, as well as a couple of clinical findings, hepatic encephalopathy and ascites. And then this was used to predict a prognosis. Now, the problem is that while this has been widely used for almost 50 years, it was developed for decisions about surgical shunts in patients with alcoholic hepatitis and really doesn't apply very well to the typical patient we see today with decompensated liver disease. So the real question that we always face is how likely is this patient to not survive the near future and we need to think about liver transplantation. And this scheme doesn't do real well. Part of the problem is that while there are three objective measures here, hepatic encephalopathy and ascites, the amounts and severity are often in the eyes of the beholder. So in the last decade, we've come to use the MELD score. The MELD score is a model for end-stage liver disease. It uses three objective, easy-to-obtain liver tests, bilirubin, creatinine, and INR. And I can show you an example. You have a patient who comes in, creatinine's 1.6, the bili is 1.4, the INR is 1.6. You plug it into a complex equation, which you can find on the internet. There's a number of sites that have this. And you get an estimated three-month mortality. And in this patient, that mortality is 18%. So how do we use that? Well, it's tied to the score. And, uh, and when a patient has more than 10 MELD points, they become a potential candidate for transplantation. Though most centers will not transplant a patient with hep C under 15. In many places in the country, because of the shortage of organs, people don't even think about getting a liver until their MELD is over 25 or so. So people are pretty sick and their mortality is pretty high. And the key is to meld your patients repeatedly as you follow them to know when do they need to go for listing or for consideration. Now, all of these complications, everything you need to know about liver disease can be understood if you just remember this simple picture here. The liver has two sources of blood oxygenated blood from the hepatic artery, and then blood that comes through the splanchnic circulation through the portal vein into the liver. That is blood that comes from the gut and blood from the spleen. Why is that important? Because this is an isolated circulation. It's separate from the rest of the body. When a person has liver disease, blood flow is impeded through the scarred liver. And just like taking a log and putting it across a stream to dam the stream, the pressure backs up. The first thing that happens is the spleen becomes enlarged. The spleen becomes larger, and it's a dumb organ. It does what it does better, which is remove blood cells. It's supposed to remove senescent blood cells, but it's bigger. It says, hey, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'll do more. And so it starts taking out platelets and white cells. 
and more red cells, and you end up with, uh, with decreases in all blood counts. And it's amazing how many cases come to me referred from the hematologist because no one ever thought that a patient had liver disease and were sent to the hematologist because their platelet counts were low or their spleen was big. But if you think about liver disease, you get them to the right place up front. The backup of blood into the intestines is part of the problem that causes the development of ascites, fluid building up in the peritoneal space. And the need to get blood back into the circulation, because just like a, a creek that's running, it doesn't shut off when there's a dam there. It builds up and it builds up and it builds up. And when you exceed the capacity, it finds a new path, a new way back into the circulation. And uh, that's what happens here. People develop collaterals. And the collaterals can appear in different places depending on an individual's physiology. So collaterals into the esophagus and stomach lead to varices. Collaterals in the umbilical vein lead to a caput medusae. Collaterals in the rectum uh, lead to development of rectal varices. Wherever there's mucosal junctions, there's a risk for an alternate flow, a connection. So with that in mind, this is a patient with ascites. And there's several things that stand out here. Obviously, he has a barrel of fluid in his belly. This guy has about 22 to 24 liters. Um, he's physically wasted. He's got an umbilical hernia that's pushing out here, and that gets to be a problem, increased risk of infection as well as, uh, as leakage. And it's a little hard to see, perhaps, but there's lines of blue across his stomach, the caput medusae, that reflects the recanalization of the umbilical vein sitting up here, back down to the umbilicus, and then it merges with vessels that all go upwards. And he has a little mark that suggests that he's been tapped. Um, it's hard to tell from this picture. That tap may be a little bit high because you always want to stay below the level of the umbilicus when you do the tap so that you don't hit these new vessels that are going upwards. The complications, well, the abdomen stretching causes pain. The patients are at risk for development of peritonitis. They can develop a hepatic hydrothorax, and they can develop hepatorenal syndrome. So when do you tap ascites? And the answer is, the first time that you discover it, you tap it and you look for the etiology. Then, every time that patient is admitted to the hospital for any reason, you tap the patient. And the reason that you're doing that is that uh, patients don't have to have belly pain or fever or a high white count to have peritonitis. But if they have peritonitis, their survival over the next 60 days is significantly decreased if you don't treat it. And then with all changes in status, patient has a bleed, patient has new onset encephalopathy or worsening encephalopathy, those are signs and symptoms of, of potential underlying SBP. Now, how do you do it? You don't send the patient to interventional radiology where they will do a $2,000 CT scan so that they can stick a little needle in someone's abdomen and try and get it in the right place. 
You use a, the safest, easiest thing for a diagnostic tap is a sub-umbilical needle, one-inch needle on a syringe. Uh, you put the patient up at about a 30-degree angle. You don't need to give them platelets or FFP. You don't need to worry about correcting clotting factors. It's an avascular area in the midline below the umbilicus. You get your fluid, you send it for cell count, and you do culture at bedside directly into culture bottles. If you send your syringe to the lab, you've already lost more than 50 to 60 percent of the chance that you have of finding an organism present. When you need to do large volume paracentesis, you have to use the right tools, and there's a special needle called a Caldwell needle that lets you do that. And then, in some cases, you replace the albumin, because in patients that require TAPs, protein loss from paracentesis becomes a major contributor to their morbidity and mortality. Now, for those of you that think you can't do this, this is from a woodblock from the 1300s in Italy where they understood this problem and this process. And you see uh, a person in the background, the physician supervising. This is the barber, which we now call a surgeon, uh, doing the work. <laughs> and. Uh, and the patient has, is being tapped. Now, I don't like his position very much because the inferior epigastric artery runs across here, and you don't want to hit that. It would have been better to be a little more lateral and down. But uh, otherwise, pretty good technique. He looks like he's getting a lot of fluid off, and uh, it's not much different today in the way that we do this. So how do we manage ascites? Well, first-line therapy for tense societies is to do a large volume paracentesis. You put the patient on sodium restriction, and that's hard. I tell patients if your food tastes good, then you shouldn't be eating it. <laughs> we start diuretics, and everyone wants to start Lasix because they know in congestive heart failure, you give someone a shot of Lasix and the fluid comes off and it looks like a miracle cure. But that doesn't work in this. That helps drive patients to hepatorenal syndrome. So the most important drug is the aldosterone antagonist, spironolactone. So you start that at a dose of about 50 milligrams a day, and then you give a little bit of Lasix, 10 to 20 milligrams. You titrate stepwise about every two weeks, because the effect is not immediate, up to about 400 milligrams a day of the spironolactone. And you don't call the patient refractory until you've done this, because that's the other thing. We hear the patient couldn't tolerate it. Why do you think that when you didn't even increase the dose or do anything to adjust it? In the meantime, as long as you need it, you can do large volume paracentesis. At some point, you can consider TIPS, transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunting, which is about 35 to 40 percent effective in reducing ascites, and in some cases, eliminating the need for diuretics. But the ultimate cure in this setting is with liver transplantation. Diagnosing SVP, a couple of methods. Get a cell count. 500, you have SVP. 250 polys, that trumps the 500. You have SVP if you have more than 250 neutrophils present. Positive culture, that trumps the white count, but cultures are not always positive, 
So you treat it based on the white count, not on the culture. The culture helps you modify your regimen for treatment. How do you treat it? Antibiotics, IV for five days. There's only one large randomized controlled trial of antibiotics that let us decide that cefotaxime is better than gentamicin. And that was done a generation ago. People do use other cephalosporins. They seem to work, but there's no good trials that tell us that. In addition, once someone has SBP, you need to retap them between 48 and 72 hours later to make sure that, in fact, you got it right. Albumin. If at the time you diagnose SBP, you give the patient albumin, then you significantly decrease the overall mortality. It's such a simple thing, and yet, as a simple practice, we see this almost never done in patients that have been sent into us from outside. So giving albumin makes a big difference. Prevention of SBP. Once you know someone has SBP, or someone is at high risk, and particularly your patients with HIV infection, then prophylaxis is appropriate. And there's a number of ways of doing this. Uh, Cipro is probably the easiest, but uh, there's good regimens with norfloxacin and trimethoprim sulfa as well. Hepatic hydrothorax. You're thinking, why do I need to know about that? Hepatic hydrothorax occurs, this is not a patient with a huge infection-related pleural fusion. This is a common complication. The patients develop cracks in their diaphragm, and the negative pressure of the lung pulls the ascites up into the lung space. With every breath, you suck up fluid. And sometimes the ascites are gone. You say, my patient doesn't have ascites. Yes, they do. It's just all in the lung space. The patients get short of breath. They need to be tapped. There is this tremendous desire to get tired of doing those taps and stick in a chest tube. And your thoracic surgeons love that. Easy procedure, bill a lot, not my problem anymore. I want to tell you now, do not ever put in a chest tube in a patient with a hepatic hydrothorax what you end up doing is draining out all of their protein. They become severely malnourished and within a matter of just a couple of weeks become a non-transplant candidate. You can never remove that tube once it's in. The only answer for that patient is to go ahead and do a transplant. And some patients are not transplant candidates. Okay, esophageal varices. This is part of the collateral circulation that occurs when the patients are unable to get blood through their liver. Again, the blood has to go someplace, and in some people, it goes to these tiny ves vessels that exist at the gastroesophageal junction, which over time swell up to carry more and more blood, except they were never meant to be capacitance vessels. They were never meant to carry blood. And at some point, you see them here, these blue lines going down the esophagus, at some point, they thin out more and more and more, and they start to bleed. For that reason, we surveil patients. So in a patient that we know has cirrhosis, we look for varices. And if there's no varices, we look again in three years. 
If there are varices and they're small, then that patient needs to be started on a non-selective beta blocker. Not just a beta blocker. If the patient's on metoprolol or atenolol, that's no good because the cardioselective beta blockers don't do anything to the splanchnic circulation. So it's got to be indorol or natalol, which will reduce the pressures and thus reduce the risk of bleeding. And when there are large varices present, then it's time to use not just beta blockers, but we begin to do band ligation, where we actually try to eradicate the flow in those vessels. Why is this a big deal? Well, first, the prevalence is high. In patients with cirrhosis, 35 to 80 percent will have varices. Of those that have varices, 25 to 40 percent will have a bleed at some point in their course. And of those that have a bleed, 30 to 50% will die within 60 days of that bleed. So identifying it early and preventing the bleed is a really important thing for survival. And once you bleed, you don't stop bleeding. A little bit of time passes and almost everyone bleeds again. In many cases, the only thing that stops bleeding is death or liver transplant. Hepatic encephalopathy. So hepatic encephalopathy is a condition associated with the shunting of, of gut-produced nitrogen-containing compounds that cross the blood-brain barrier. And we diagnose it by looking for asterixis. Hands out and extended, and the patient has loss of inhibitory control, and their hand shakes like that. Okay? Not like this. Not that little back and forth. It's a very clear motion. You don't need to follow ammonias in patients. They're notoriously inaccurate and not useful. The clinical diagnosis, looking at the patient, is the way that you decide if a patient has encephalopathy. Once you have this, survival is bad. So 42% will survive one year. The majority are going to be dead. And 23% in three years. It's precipitated by things that are in the gut. So we talk about the Big Mac attack, the patient that, uh, that eats suddenly a very high-protein meal, a patient with a GI bleed. So blood in the gut is protein. It gets absorbed. It causes encephalopathy. But a lot of times it's more subtle, and it is an infection like SBP, uh, occasionally a vascular thrombosis. So every time a patient has a worsening encephalopathy, we do Doppler ultrasound imaging of their liver. The appearance of an HCC where there wasn't one before, or it could be poor compliance with hepatic encephalopathy treatment. Now, the traditional treatments involved use of either lactulose, which is a non-absorbable sugar that causes an osmotic diarrhea that moves compounds rapidly through the gut, compounds, food and waste products through the gut, you poop your brains out, and there's less time for absorption. But patients don't really like that very much. So other methods over the years have been use of neomycin or metronidazole to try and alter the gut flora and prevent the production of those compounds. But they each have their own problems. Neomycin causes renal toxicity, in patients already at risk for renal injury, and flagell causes peripheral neuropathy with long-term use. 
So the new kid on the block is rifaximin, and this has really revolutionized treatment of encephalopathy. This was a New England Journal published study, the phase three pivotal trial that was published last year, uh, the same week that the drug was approved by the FDA for this indication. Um, it is not the same dose that's used for traveler's diarrhea. It's 550 milligrams twice a day. And in prevention of encephalopathy, of an, of an occurrence after starting, this is the randomization, patients who got rifaximin were much less likely than those that were on placebo rifaximin to have an episode of first breakthrough hepatic encephalopathy that led to hospitalization. Finally, liver transplantation. When do you send a patient for liver transplantation? And the simple answer is at the moment that you see and identify any hepatic decompensation. Does that mean you ignore it? No, you have to think about all the things that I already told you about because it's probably going to take two months to get that patient into the transplant center and you can't ignore all that other stuff in that period of time. If the patient develops ascites encephalopathy, variceal bleeding, it's time to make the call. When the meld is greater than 10, even if those things haven't occurred, it's time to make the call. And at the first moment that you diagnose a liver cancer, because the window of doing something with that patient in terms of both ablation and transplantation is, is down to a matter of months from the moment you discover a cancer present. So in all of those situations, that's the time to get on the phone and make a call. Transplants are a problem. 55,000 people a year die of end-stage liver disease in the U.S., and that number is rising dramatically as the hep C cohort ages. We transplant about 5,000 people a year. There's a shortage of organs. So getting your patient on the list and managed early and managed appropriately is really important because if they don't get there early enough, they won't get listed. And even if they get there, then good management is critical to keep them alive until an organ becomes available for them. So in summary, hepatitis C is a treatable disease, but it's also a liver disease, not just a viral process. You need to ask in each patient that you see, is advanced fibrosis present? And if the answer is yes, then that patient needs to be started on a surveillance program for varices, for ascites, and for liver cancer. And remember that when you see signs of hepatic decompensation or the MELD rises, it's time to call the hepatologist and say, I need some help here. Thank you. for Susan and Ken. Thank you very much, Ken. Thank you, Susan. It was a very good talk. So as I said last night to Ken, I thought that AIDS had saved me from having to worry about liver disease. But <laughs> are the adverse, Susan, are the adverse effects of HIV PIs augmented with the use of the, your PIs? 
I mean, you showed about the drug interaction. Right. So it seems like most of the drug, well, so obviously with Procepivir, we don't have any, uh, any drug-drug interactions other than with Ritonavir, for which there was not a significant impact. But obviously that data is lacking. If you look at the drug-drug interaction data with Tilaprevir, we actually had a significant decrease in a majority of those PIs, which would mean you'd be at higher risk of having virologic failure and, and less of an issue with having increased um, adverse events from those drugs having higher levels. So that's not really the issue. It's more of a concern that patients may fail their HIV therapy because they have lower PI levels. The only PI that had a slightly higher AUC was Adizanavir, but it was not significant. It was 20%, so there would be no expectation to have significant AEs related to that. Can I just, one quick comment. It is possible that uh, as we treat more patients, we will see more adazanavir-associated unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. And uh, I, since it's, if people worry about jaundice and being jaundiced, this is unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia or indirect bilirubin. And this is not a liver disease. In fact, uh, for those that are susceptible to this, there's, there's improved lifetime survival with less risk of both cancer and cardiovascular disease. So if you turn yellow in that case, it's actually a good thing. <laughs> Ken, um, uh, everybody buys the idea that ultrasound is not going to tell you about fibrosis. But there are other techniques that are being studied as to give you uh, some evidence of fibrosis. And can you use those in, spot, in place of a liver biopsy, or do you need both? Okay, so we're talking about non-invasive tests, and uh, they fall basically into two broad classes. Uh, those that uh, are biochemical tests, surrogate markers of advanced liver disease, or tests that uh, measure hepatic fibrosis by measuring the relative stiffness of the liver. And I'll take briefly each of those in turn. In the biochemical test, there's proprietary assays that, are, that combine a series of tests and use a complex algorithm that is not shared that uh, give you a score. And that score is then related to the degree of fibrosis. And, and the fibro test and the fibro shore are a couple of examples of those. These tests are pretty good at the extremes, meaning in a patient that's cirrhotic, if it says the patient's cirrhotic, the patient's probably cirrhotic. And if it says that there is no fibrosis, the patient probably has low or very minimal fibrosis. The tests fall apart in the middle, all of the intermediate stages. You can't tell where the patient is at. And in patients with HIV, because of some of the test characteristics that are used, they don't do very well in patients with HIV because uh, measures like bilirubin may be increased when a patient's on adazanavir. So uh, it becomes a little bit of a problem. There's non-proprietary tests that use simple, commonly acquired lab tests like ALT and AST and platelet count. Um, and these tend to be diagnostically a little bit worse, so an increased error rate compared to the proprietary tests. But again, not terrible in the patients that have either very severe disease or no disease. The other big category is the tests that measure the liver stiffness. 
And the main way of doing that is a machine that's called the FibroScan. Uh, it is not available in the U.S. It was studied here, and uh, in its first controlled trial, it actually was not approved by the Food and Drug Administration because of a high error rate. Um, this machine is used all over Europe now and has largely replaced liver biopsy in many places. Um, and it's hard to understand why. Some of it may be differences in the population. The other may be greater acceptance of simply being wrong. So uh, um, there is one other test that's uh, an MR scan using a particular algorithm that uh, in studies has shown an extremely high correlation with liver biopsy fibrosis. And uh, I think that as time goes on, we'll actually see more use of MR in this setting because uh, the test characteristics look really, really good. Susan, um, do we know anything about the cost of the drugs for HCV and how are we going to pay for that on top of the HIV drugs? How is yes. the patient going to pay for that? Yes, yeah, so we do. And I, I think Ken even has a better estimate than I have. But um, the numbers that I have heard... Um, and, and they've changed slightly for telaprevir, but for bisuprevir, somewhere around $30,000 for the treatment course, whether it's 24, 36, or 48 weeks. Um, for telaprevir, I've heard anywhere from 30 to 50,000, um, with 50,000 being the very highest that I've heard. Um, but, but I think very clearly they're going to at least double the cost um, because PEG and RIBA is still involved, and I think will be a significant limitation for a number of patients. I think there are... I think many of us are very interested to see how insurance companies um, and, and maybe some of the places where you practice, in my example, the VA, uh, will, uh, you know, control the access to these drugs and whether they'll require some baseline markers to make decisions of the utility of this or not. But uh, you may have better estimates. Well, I would say that, that from what we're seeing, it looks like a full course of treatment is going to be someplace in the range of, of fifty dollars to $60,000 plus the cost of visits and labs to manage a patient. And that sounds terrible and sounds high, but in economic modeling, which so far has been relatively limited, uh, the, the value of a cure, remember this is not a chronic treatment and, and we have a high rate of cure now, the value of a cure versus the cost of the progression to more advanced liver disease is actually quite good, and, uh, and when one looks at quality-adjusted life years, even with these drug costs, uh, it is below what we accept in things like mammography as the value for each quality-adjusted life year gained. And I, I would add that I think when we, as we have more agents, the market will in some way control itself, and I think that's why I think it's really important to continue to re-stratify, recognizing that as more drugs come, one is we'll have better options, but two, I do believe that the cost will decline um, because, it's, you know, more options you have, the more likely there'll be competition. So a more general question to either one of you. Um, in, your H in HIV infected patients, how, how would you use liver function tests? Would you do them once a year, every three months? What, what do you think is useful? Well, I think that, uh, that the HIV community in particular has uh, sort of closed their eyes over a generation to abnormal liver tests because they were so common and they weren't apparently the primary problem. Uh, 
Um, but we've come to realize that uh, whatever your lab has told you about even the upper limits of normal is not true, and that if one uses not a statistical measure of upper limits of normal, but actually when is disease present, uh, you should be thinking that your patient has liver disease when for a man their ALT is greater than 30 and for a woman their ALT is greater than 19. And if those abnormalities persist certainly for six months or longer, it's time to do a workup and find out why those patients have abnormal liver tests. How often would you, if a patient of yours is, or a patient of one of these, in one of the, our clinics here, is HCV negative. How often would you, would you repeat that? So Given the fact that, at least among men who have sex with men, right. uh, they don't have to be ID used to get infected. So there clearly is ongoing risk in patients that engage in risk behaviors, whether that's uh, men who have sex with men with uh, with high-risk sex and multiple partners, or whether it involves injection drug use. And uh, those patients do need to be rescreened. How and when to choose which ones to screen and how frequently is, uh, is a matter of debate right now. Some people are doing a, a new hep C antibody every year. Um, but recent analyses from the U.S. and Europe where there's been outbreaks uh, suggest that actually an increase in ALT may be the most sensitive marker. So a patient that's been running ALTs of 28, 30, and all of a sudden they're 65 or 80 or 100, you should be re-looking at that point for uh, hepatitis C. Yeah, and I, I would add to that, the CDC is releasing, a, will release re recommendations for HCV screening in HIV-infected high-risk patients. And there have been cost analyses looking at the cost of doing an HCV antibody every year versus um, leading by having an abnormal ALT that then warrants the HCV antibody. And my understanding is the recommendation will be every six-month ALT, and if an abnormal ALT, um, then that patient should go on to a hep C antibody. And, and that will be in patients who have continued risk. Turn that coin over. How frequently does somebody clear spontaneously HCV? Yeah, so, I mean, for all comers, HCV mono-infection, it's somewhere between 20 to 30, I mean, it's 20 to 30 percent of patients will spontaneously clear, so 70 to 80 percent will go on to develop disease. And, and we certainly know that if they're already HIV infected, based on cohort studies, that that number is likely more um, consistent with 90 percent go on to chronic infection, more like 5 to 10 percent spontaneously clear. Well, thank you both very much. No more questions? Thank All you. Right. Thank you. Thank you.